I want you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 6. I think we're starting in verse 9. We'll get there in just a minute. We're continuing through the Lord's Prayer. And if you're new today for the first time, um, let me give you a brief overview of what we learned so far. Disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, and then he gives them the model prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer. And he begins by talking about, hey, when you begin your prayer, you need to address God. And he taught us to address God as our Father in heaven. And that first and foremost, we're to look at God as our Father, as our Dad, but he's not just our loving, tender, heavenly Father, but he is also our King and our God. So he's our Father in heaven. And then Jesus taught us the first thing, that we're to pray for, and we're not to jump in and start asking for stuff for ourselves, but the first thing we pray for is that the name of God would be hallowed in our lives, would be glorified, would be exalted through our lives. And then last week was the second thing that we're to pray, and that's we ask God for his kingdom to show up in power in our lives. Now today, we're gonna look at the next thing Jesus teaches us to pray, which in my opinion, this next part of the prayer is hands down the most difficult thing to pray in the whole prayer. It's one of the most difficult, gut-wrenching, radical things you will ever pray. And that is for you to pray for God's will to be done in your life. So let's read this together, Matthew 6, 9. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, and here it is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, after you pray for the kingdom's power to show up in your life, then the next thing you're asking God for is for his will to be done in your life here on earth in the same way that it is done in heaven. Now listen, everybody check this out. For you to pray that prayer, and for you not just to pray it, but for you to actually mean it when you pray it, is, pardon the cliche, but that is varsity level Christianity. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's uh, what separates the men from the boys, is you being able to say, God, I want your will in my life. Now, here's a question. Why does Jesus teach us to pray for his will to be done? Because one of the things we know about God is that he's sovereign, right? Y'all with me? He's sovereign, which means his will's going to happen no matter what, because he's God. And so why, if he's sovereign and his will's happening anyway, why is it that we're supposed to pray for and ask for his will to be done? Here's the answer. And listen to this really carefully. This is important. Because when you pray, God, I want your will to be done, that is not a prayer where you're seeking God's will for your life, but it's a prayer where you're surrendering to God's will for your life. Not a prayer where you're seeking God's will, it's a prayer where you're surrendering to God's will for your life. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Um, when you look at the original language of what your will be done means, here's what it means. Got a little definition for you. When you say your will be done, what you're literally saying to God is God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. 
That's what you're praying. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And that, my friends, is a lot easier to pray than it is to mean. Y'all with me? And especially when you understand the extent that Jesus is telling us to pray for God's will in our life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, Watch this. Matthew 6.10 again. He says, pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. And then he adds something on the end there. He says, on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus says, here's what you pray. You ask for God's will to be done in the same way here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how is God's will done in heaven? Right? To understand that, I want to show you what King David said about how God's will is done in heaven. Don't turn there. It's in Psalms 103, 19. King David's talking about how the angels respond to God in heaven. Let me read this to you. Psalms 103, 19. It says, the Lord, this is David talking. He says, the Lord established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And so we know God's in heaven. He's got his throne there and he's in charge. And then verse 20, it says, bless the Lord, Oh, you angels. So he's talking about the angels here. And he starts describing them. He says, you mighty ones who do his word, who obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord. Verse 21. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, those are angels, who do his will. Right? So he's saying, guys, that right now in heaven, God's in charge. There's no question about who's in charge in heaven. There's, There's no question about who gets to call the shots in heaven or in earth. And so what he's saying, King David's saying for the angels, whatever God wants, they do it. He says for the angels, whatever God's desire is and whatever God's will is, that becomes the angel's will and the angel's desire. And so when you pray, God, I want your will to be done here on earth in my life as it is in heaven. Here's what you're literally praying. You're saying, God, in the same way in the exact same way that the angels obey and surrender to your will in heaven, that's the way I want to obey and surrender to your will and your desires here on earth. And again, that's a lot easier said than it is done. Because if I were to ask you guys, especially if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, and I were to ask you the question, hey, do you want God's will for your life? We would say, Amen. We do, yes, we want God's will for our lives. Pretty much all of us would say that, but here's the question. What if we find out that our will for our lives is not God's will for our lives? What if we find out that God's will for us is not our will for us? What if we find out what God wants for us is not what we want for us and we would have never chosen for ourselves? What if, what if, Jimmy talked about it, what if God's will for our life is that the illness doesn't go away? What if God's will for your life is that the difficulty doesn't go away just yet? What if if your will is to get married, but God's will is for you to remain single and focus on him, right? What I've sort of discovered as a pastor and as just a, a, a Christian and as a person is that everybody says they want God's will, until God's will doesn't line up with their will. And then, and that's when stuff starts getting difficult. And so Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer as a prayer of surrender. As a prayer of surrender. God, I don't want what I want. 
I want what you want. Okay, now because this prayer is so difficult to pray, especially when God's will for us might be a really difficult circumstance or something that we would have never chosen for ourselves, here's what I'm gonna do with the rest of the sermon. I'll give you three points about the importance of this prayer and the power of this prayer in your life, and then we're gonna be done today. So point number one, here it is. Praying, God, I don't want what I want, I want what you want, is the proof that you want God's name to be hallowed in your life. All right, so you praying, God, I don't want what I want, I want what you want, is the evidence that you want the Lord's name to be exalted and hallowed through your life, right? In other words, you can pray all day long that you want God's name to be exalted. You can pray all day long that you want God's name to be held through your life, but the evidence that that's what you really want is if you're also willing to pray after that, God, at the end of the day, here's how I want you to be held and exalted. I don't want what I want. I want what you want in my life. I'm gonna give you a couple of examples. This first one, I'm gonna be broad, but I've seen this happen probably 50 times in my 27 years of ministry. Um, Let's say, for instance, you're really struggling in your marriage. You're having a difficult time. Um, your marriage is not living up to your expectations. And you're not happy. And so you want out. You want out. You want a divorce. But the problem is, there's no biblical grounds for divorce. There's no adultery. There's no abuse. Nothing like that. You just don't want to be married anymore. And you know what God's word says, but you don't want to be married anymore. So you file for divorce. I've seen it happen 50 times. If that's what a person does, them praying, God, I want your name to be exalted in my life is absolutely meaningless because they're not also willing to pray, God, I don't want what I want for my marriage. I want what you want for my marriage. And what you want for my marriage is what Jesus said, which is what God has joined together. You don't break apart. Let me give you another example, and this is a more specific one. At my previous church, um, there was a guy, I'm not going to say his name, he was an author of, I'm not going to go into details, but he was an author, and he became really pretty pretty popular. Some of y'all may have read his books, and he was a Christian, um, and he was on about his third book when his career really took off. And he got a book deal that was a four-book deal, and they, the book company publisher paid him millions of dollars as an advance um, for this book deal. And so overnight, he, he became pretty wealthy. And what's interesting is that all the time I knew him there in the first few years, he was always talking about, I want to use these books as a way to glorify God. I want to use these books as a way to exalt the Lord in my life. Well, he gets the big advance and all that stuff. And about that same time, he gets the big advance right afterwards. I did a series um, at, at, at the Austin Stone, my previous church, on, on giving, on generosity, on stewarding our finances for the kingdom of God. And one of my points was this. One of my points was that God asked us to give to the kingdom and give to the expansion of the kingdom with the finances that he gave us to put it back into the kingdom and to do it first. And the reason that he asked us to take the money that he's given us and put it into the kingdom and put it into the kingdom first because of what he said, which is to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. 
And my point was that seeking first the kingdom of God applies to every aspect of our life. And Jesus would argue it applies especially in our finances because of the finances' ability to own our hearts. A short time after I prayed that, about a week later, he pulls me aside one day. I remember sitting there with him. We sat down in little chairs there in my church. And he said, Matt, here's the thing. He said, I believe everything you're, you're saying from the word of God. He goes, I believe everything you're saying. He said, I see what you're saying in the text, and I believe it to be true that God wants us to give to the kingdom, give to the kingdom first, because we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God so money doesn't own our heart, but he does, and the kingdom does. And he said, I see exactly what you're saying, but then what came out of his mouth next absolutely shocked me. He said, I see it, but I just don't want to do it. I just, I just don't want to do it. He said, I've never been wealthy in my life, never had much money in my life. For the first time, I actually have money, and I, I just don't want to give it away. Hey, man, I appreciated the man's honesty. Appreciated his honesty. But the problem was, was that he left the church. And I didn't push back on him, you know. I just prayed with him and prayed for him, and he left the church. But he didn't just leave the church. Last time I checked, he left the church all together and has not ever come back. And, and guys, do you, do you see that? Before he made money, before he became wealthy, it was all about, I want to glorify God. I want to glorify God. I want to glorify God. He talked all the time about glorifying God until he realized that glorifying God meant giving away some of the money that the Lord gave him in the first place. And what God wanted for his life was not what he wanted for his life. And he bailed. He walked away. I can tell you story after story after story after story of situations just like those two and many more. People that came to church, they worship God, they tell you all day long they wanted God's will until God's will didn't line up with their will and they walked away. And I'm convinced. I'm convinced that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7, 21. When Jesus was speaking in Matthew 7, 21, he said this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he's saying, look, it's not everyone who, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but those whose lives reflect that you're Lord. He's the Lord are the ones that are going to go to heaven. And so point number one, pray God I don't want, praying God I don't want what I want, I want what you want, is the proof that you want God's name to be hallowed in your life. Okay, now here's point number two about the importance and power of this prayer. Point number two, and I'll show you why this matters here in a second. But praying God I don't want what I want, I want what you want, is what gave Jesus the power to pick up his cross, that prayer is, is what gave Jesus the power to pick up his cross. Now, guys, I've been studying the Bible a long time, and I'm convinced that with the exception of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus praying that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was the most pivotal moment in history. It's the most pivotal moment in history because it was that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that gave Jesus the power to walk to the cross. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Scripture says, after Jesus was baptized, he went out to the desert to fast and to pray. He began his ministry. And while he was out there in the desert, 
Lo and behold, Satan shows up. Satan rose up on the scene, and during their interaction in the desert, Satan starts tempting Jesus. Now, here's a theological question for you. Don't shout it out. Why was Satan tempting Jesus? Why was he tempting Jesus? Well, it's a pretty straightforward answer. He was tempting Jesus because he was trying to get Jesus to sin. All right? Now, here's the other theological question for you. Why was Satan trying to get Jesus to sin? Why was he trying to get him to sin? Another simple answer. Satan was trying to get Jesus to sin because if Jesus sins, Satan wins, right? That rhymed. I didn't mean that to rhyme, but it rhymed. And so you'll you'll remember it. If Jesus sins, then Satan wins. Why do I say that? That if Jesus sins, Satan wins. And here's why. Because in order for Jesus to be qualified to die on a cross as a substitute for you and I and as a payment for our sin, Jesus had to be completely sinless. Y'all with me? Had to be completely sinless. One of the things that that happens in the moment of our salvation is because Jesus lived a absolutely sinless life, we trade our sin and we receive his perfect righteousness. And so if Jesus sins just one time, he is no longer qualified to be our perfect righteousness. Satan wins. And Satan knew that. He knew it. And we know that he knew it because he was told that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the Old Testament. After Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, God came up to Satan and he said, Satan, here's the deal. Since you've done this, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a baby that's going to be born of a virgin. And when that baby grows up, he's going to save the world from their sin. He's going to be a savior. He's going to be a Messiah. He's going to be a Christ. And not only that, Satan, not only is he going to be the Savior of the world, but in the process of saving the world, he's going to destroy you. Okay? So from that moment right there, from that moment right there, when Satan knew there was going to come a day where baby be born a virgin, grow up, destroy him, and save the world, Satan, we know this, Satan was looking for Jesus. He was looking for the birth of the Messiah Savior. But thousands of years went by. Nothing happened. Thousands more years went by. Nothing happened. No birth, no baby, no Messiah. And then all of a sudden, on a cold winter night, about 2,000 years ago, it happened. He came. And I would imagine the scenario went something like this. I would imagine that some demons came up to Satan and said, um, hey, boss, um, uh, man, we got some bad news. We were out in a field. We were hanging out near Bethlehem, and we saw some light, and so we went out there, and out in a field near Bethlehem, near the city of David, we, we, we heard some angels singing, and they were singing about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And Satan probably said, ah, ah don't worry about that. Angels are always singing and shining light and stuff. Probably not a big deal. But then one of the demons said, yeah, Satan gets worse one of the angels started talking to some shepherds. And here's what he said to the shepherds. He told the shepherds that today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Satan, we think he's come. 
we, we think he's here. And church, I'm telling you, from that moment, Satan tried to take Jesus out. He couldn't take him out. The Lord protected him, killed all the babies, all that stuff. God protected him. And they knew he couldn't take him out. And so from that moment forward, Satan's number one goal in life is to get Jesus to sin. Because if Jesus sins one time, he's no longer qualified to be our savior so that we can inherit his perfect righteousness, okay? So he's trying to get him to sin. Jesus sins, Satan wins. Now, fast forward about 30 years. Jesus grows up, he's beginning his ministry, he goes out to the desert, Satan rolls up on the scene immediately, Mark says, and Satan starts tempting him, trying to get Jesus to sin. He throws three temptations at him. The first two do not work. Tempts him twice, Jesus just quotes scripture at him, that's it. But with the third and final temptation, Satan throws a Hail Mary. Hail Mary. He's going all in on the third temptation. Let me read it to you. Don't turn there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Here's the third temptation. And the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very tall mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. That's the Hail Mary. Here's the situation. Satan takes Jesus up on a tall mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms and the peoples of the world. That is likely a vision. It's likely a vision of all the past kingdoms and peoples, all the current kingdoms and peoples, and all the future kingdoms and peoples. It's entirely possible that you and I were in that vision, and Satan says this. Satan says, all right, Jesus, I'll make a deal with you. See all those kingdoms? See all those peoples? Satan said, I tell you what, Jesus, I'll just give them to you. I'll just give them to you. You can have them on one condition that you bow down and you worship me. Now, question, why does Satan, if you are here last week, you, you know this, why does Satan say that he can give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Why does he say that? We talked about it last week. One of the names God gave uh, Satan after the fall was the ruler of the world. That's what God called Satan, the ruler of the world, because after Adam and Eve sinned, even though God was ultimately in control, God gave Satan temporary rule and reign over the kingdoms of the earth. And one of the primary reasons that Jesus came to this planet was to win back the whole world and destroy Satan's rule and reign. You with me? But what was God's plan for how Jesus was going to do that? He's going to come to this planet win back the whole world, destroy Satan's rule and reign, but what was God's plan, what was God's will, and what was God's desire for how that was gonna happen? God's will, God's plan for Jesus to do that meant two things. Number one, Jesus had to live a sinless life, right? Here's the other thing. After he lived a sinless life, he had to die on a cross, shedding his blood, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could receive his righteousness and they had to be raised from the dead forever conquering sin and death. Y'all with me? That was God's plan. That was God's will. All right, with that in mind, watch again what Satan says. Matthew 4, 8. It says, and the devil took him to a very tall mountain, 
showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Do y'all see what Satan's offering Jesus? Here's what Satan is offering Jesus. He's, he takes him to this mountain. He shows all the peoples of the world. And he says, hey, Jesus, isn't this why you came in the first place? See all those kingdoms? See all those people? Aren't they the reason you came? Didn't you come to win them back? He says, here's the deal. I'll offer a deal to you, Jesus. I'll just give them to you. What he was doing, what he was offering Jesus, was to give us back without Jesus' death on the cross. He's like, Jesus, I'll just give it to you. You don't have to die. You don't have to shed your blood. I'll just hand them over to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about, you probably hadn't, because I hadn't, but have you, have you ever thought about like what would have happened if Jesus would have taken the deal? It's actually been a debate among theologians for a long time because seminary professors don't have anything better to do than debate stuff like this. And so it's been a debate for a long time about what would have happened if Jesus took the deal. Doesn't go to the cross, doesn't pay for our sin, gets us back, worship Satan. What would have happened? Well, the, the primary theory is this. Most scholars think that in that moment that Jesus took the deal because Satan knew that he won because he thwarted God's plan. A lot of people think that in that moment, Satan would have stopped his reign of terror. He would have stopped his reign of terror. He'd have called off his demons. Um, he would have stopped seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. And because of that, because Satan sort of stopped his reign of terror, stopped tempting people, stopped killing, stealing, and destroying... A lot of theologians think that the world would have immediately become kind of like the Garden of Eden again. It had reverted back to paradise. Like they think that a ton of uh, the bad stuff would go away without Satan's influence in the world, that there'd be, you know, just so much less negativity and killing and stealing and destroying, likely no war, likely no abortion, likely no poverty. It's quite possible without the influence of Satan in the world that diseases might have gone away majority of them, and we would live these long, long lives like they did back in the Old Testament, like Methuselah was 960-something years, I can't remember. Now, I have no idea if that's true or not. We'll never know. But here's the thing. If that's true, that sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, world becomes a paradise. Jesus doesn't have to die. Why in the world? Would Jesus say no to that? And here's the answer, and I want you to hear this, guys. Jesus said no to that because he knew that if he took that deal, yes, the world might become a paradise, and yes, we might live these long, easy lives, but because of the wages of sin is death, we would still have sin in our nature, and we would all eventually die, right? Wages of sin is death, we would all have still sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And so we might live these long lives, but we would all eventually die. And without Jesus' death on the cross, church, look at me, our sin would have never been paid for. 
Without Jesus' death on the cross, our sin would have never been paid for. And when we eventually died, we would die in our sin. We would die in our sin. We would all spend eternity in hell. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he looked at Satan in that moment and he said, Satan, please leave. Actually, it's more a command. He said, Satan, get out of here. Because the scripture says that we're to worship God and worship him only. There's one final question for you. Was that actually a temptation for Jesus? Was it actually a temptation for Jesus not to walk to the cross? There's a difference between temptation and sin. Jesus didn't sin. I'm asking if he was tempted to sin. The answer is you better believe he was tempted. And the reason we know that is because of the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? On the night before the cross, right before his arrest, Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And as he prayed, the scripture says he is in anguish. Now, why is he in anguish? Well, he's struggling so deeply. We know this. I'll show you how deeply he's struggling. He's struggling, struggling so deeply that his capillaries burst in his forehead. Drops of blood start coming off his head. Why was he struggling so deeply? It's because he knew that to pay for the sin of the world, he didn't just have to die on a cross but he had to become our sin. He had to become our sin, the scripture says. That's why uh, I believe it was Paul, he said he, that's Jesus, he that knew no sin, he that knew no sin became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. He that knew no sin became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, And, and, and think about it. That's why he's struggling in the garden. That's why he's shedding blood. Here's a man who's never sinned one time. So because he's never sinned, he's never known the shame of sin. He's never known the sting of sin. He's never experienced firsthand the consequences of sin. And on top of that, he's been in a perfectly sinless relationship with his heavenly father for all of eternity. And the moment that he becomes our sin, he's separated from his heavenly father for the first time in all eternity. So you better believe he was sweating blood. I'm convinced, guys, he wasn't sweating blood because of the nails. I'm convinced he was sweating blood because he was gonna become our sin. Every rape, every murder, every genocide, everything you and I have ever done, he became that and bore that on the cross. And he knows it. His whole life has been moving towards this purpose. And he gets down on his hands and his knees. Do you remember what he cried out? He cried out three times. God, is there any other way? Is there any other way to win him back? Father, is there any other way? then I can accomplish your plan. Is there any other way that I can accomplish your will? Because God, if it's possible, please let this cup pass from me. Let it pass from me. Yeah. 100%. It was a temptation. When Satan comes to him and says, hey, I'll, I'll just give them to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to become our sin. I'll just give them to you. Better believe it was a temptation, but it was a temptation that he did not succumb to. 
Because after the third time of him crying out to God, God, is there any other way? I want you to watch what he prayed. Matthew 26, 39, and this was the prayer. Well, all of history pivoted toward the glory of God. Matthew 26, 39, after three times, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He faced death on a cross. As he faced death on a cross, as he faced becoming our sin, on his hands and knees, he prayed, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And in that moment, after he prays that prayer of surrender, I don't want what I want, God. I want what you want. He stood up and he willingly walked to the cross, and I'm gonna tell you something, Sage Mott, he never wavered again. He never wavered again as he lived out the will of his father. They arrested him, they tortured him, they drove nails through his hands and his feet, and after six hours of hanging there in utter agony, he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished! What was finished? His payment. For our sin, it's finished. And then he breathed his last breath, and then he died. Everybody check this out. And in the moment he died, in the moment that our sinless Savior died, he bought the forgiveness of sins with his blood from people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation all over the world. And if that were not enough, the forgiveness of sins was bought, but then he died and then he rose from the grave and he conquered sin and death forever, forever, forever. So on the Mount of Temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said no to Satan and he said yes to the cross because he didn't just want you back. He wanted you back completely and perfectly. He, he said no to Satan and he said yes to the cross because he didn't want to heal your earthly disease. He wanted to heal your eternal disease. Jesus said no to Satan and he said yes to the cross because he didn't want to come and just delay your death. He wanted to come and destroy your death. And that's why, and that's why he prayed what he prayed. And what gave him the power to pray that? What gave him the power to stand up, walk to the cross, become our sin, and die was a simple prayer. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. So point number one, praying God, I don't want what you want. Want what I want, I want what you want, is the proof that you want God's name to be held. Number two, praying, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Gave Jesus the power to pick up his cross. Last point, point number three, praying, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. We'll give you the power to pick up your cross. It was the power. Gave him the power to pick up his cross. It's gonna give you the power to pick up yours really, really fast. Hang with me. Matthew 16, 24 Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him, everybody say that with me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, you wanna, you wanna know what it looks like to follow me? Here's what it looks like to follow me. You deny yourself. 
You deny your desires, you desire your will, and you pick up your cross and you start following after me. And what's gonna give you the power to deny yourself and pick up your cross is the same thing that gave Jesus the power to deny himself and pick up his cross, and that's when he prayed, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. And I'm gonna end today by telling you a story of one time that I did this in my life. I don't always do it, Lord knows that. But there was a moment that I can remember when as difficult as it was, I prayed this prayer. And when I did, everything changed. I've shared this one time, I believe, a while back, but I didn't share it in the context of this prayer. And so I'm gonna share it again for those of you that are new or, or weren't there that Sunday. I got cancer at 31 years old. Routine appendectomy. Um, they, you know, my appendix was, was infected. They go in, they get the appendix out. I feel better, everything's great. Three days later, get a phone call. Matt, we found a 1.9 centimeter malignant tumor in your appendix. It was a rough day. Here's the thing about carcinoid tumor of the appendix. At two centimeters is when they typically spread. This was at 1.9. It's the kind of tumor that if it gets outside of your appendix and gets into your lymph nodes, it's over, game over. No chemo works. Just kills you. If it stays in the appendix, doesn't get to your lymph nodes, to cut it out, you almost usually never ever see it again. Well, of course, usually spreads at two, mine's at 1.9, and it was sort of poking through the wall of the appendix. So they go in, they scan me, and sure enough, one of the lymph nodes right next to the appendix is swollen. Doctor says, all right, one of two things is going on. Number one, um, he said that lymph node is swollen because of the surgery. We in, did the incision right there. It's entirely possible. The other thing is it's spread to your lymph node and we're not gonna be able to know for three months. Gotta wait three months and then we'll do another CAT scan and measure the lymph node. That was not a fun three months, guys. <laughs> three months of not knowing whether I'm gonna live or gonna die. Little kids. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle. I wanted to raise my boys. And it was a rough time, you know, because you're 31. You don't want to die. You don't want to leave your kids. You don't want to leave your wife. You don't want to do that. And so I dealt with a lot of fear during that time. And uh, almost ashamedly so, because here I'd been preaching for years about trusting God. And when the rubber meet the road, I couldn't do it. Three months finally came, come to my appointment. I had this book right here in my hands, this Bible right here. My mom gave it to me in 1996 before she died. And I'm carrying this thing, and I sit down, and I literally just open it up, and I open it up right to the cross. Y'all ever done that where you're like, I, I need something, Jesus, and you open it up, and boom, there it is. He speaks to you. It's like it's living and active or something. I open it up. It's, it's at the cross. And my eyes come to that place. I believe it's a Roman centurion. I can't remember. It's a Pharisee or Roman centurion right now. I should know that, but I don't. One, somebody's screaming out to Jesus Why he's hanging on the cross. Hey, I thought you trusted God. 
I thought you trusted God. Well, if you trust God, why don't you trust God to get you down off the cross? And in one of the clearest times that the Holy Spirit has ever spoken to me, there's not anything I would have ever thought of myself because I had not been living this out for three months. Holy Spirit just spoken in my heart. Sometimes trusting God means you don't get to get off the cross. Jesus was trusting God. Amen? God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. He was living out God's will. He was trusting God. Trusting God meant he stayed on the cross. Went and got my CAT scan. Of course, you don't find out for a week later, right? But I went home. I didn't go home. I went to my office. Couldn't quit thinking about that. Trusting God means you got to stay on the cross sometimes. I got down on my knees and I said, all right. I was like, Lord, I don't want to die. I want to raise my kids. I want to continue to serve you. But I said, Lord, if you want to take me home, I trust you. And I meant it. What I prayed was, Lord, I don't want what I want. I want what you want because I trust you. And I am telling you guys that in the moment that I prayed that, there was a peace that came over me that I had not experienced once through the whole process. There was a joy that came over me in that moment that I had never experienced through that whole process. And it was because I was willing to pray a prayer of surrender. God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want because I trust you. So what is the cross that God is calling you to pick up right now? What is the area of your life that you need to trust him enough to say, God, I don't want what I want anymore. I want what you want. Here's the thing about picking up crosses. Crosses hurt. Crosses are painful. Crosses mean sacrifice. But here's what Jesus discovered, and here's what I discovered, is there is a life, and there's a joy, and there is a peace that you can experience that can only be found on the other side of this prayer. My Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven.